0: So I got a few uh, everyday heroes in my life. i want to tell you about a couple of them as we get started. Uh, One of them is a guy named Walt Tanner. He was an architect, pretty comfortable with his life, but he was from a little community called Fountain Inn, South Carolina, that like a lot of Southern cities had just its share of issues, uh, broken homes, poverty, uh, kids who were falling behind sort of on the reading uh, charts and everything else like that. And God called him to start a church in their community. And he'd never done that. And so here he goes from being an architect to being a church planter. And they had raised all their money for their sound system and all their equipment. And it was Thanksgiving. And they went to deliver a Thanksgiving meal to this single mom. And they go in and there's holes in the floor of her single wide trailer and holes in the ceiling. And they went back to their church and said, you know, it's morally wrong for us to buy all this sound equipment uh, when this lady needs a house. And so they gave up the dream of buying all this new sound equipment and they bought this woman a new single-wide trailer. And, uh, and God's blessed their church over and over. When they needed to build a newer building, they built it in such a way that it, they, they created this thing called Fike Fountain End something, children something, but six, five days a week, it's a, it's a kid's after-school program, and then one day a week on Sunday morning, it becomes their children's <coughs> classes. And I, I love that. He's leveraged everything uh, all in the wake of being an architect and seeing a need. I think about a friend of mine named Dustin who lived in a town about two hours from where we were from, Columbia, South Carolina, and he was starting a church. It was statistically the poorest church in South Carolina. Uh, And here's why. Because it was all, they were right by the University of South Carolina, so naturally they picked up college kids. He was young, and uh, this was when uh, pastors wore really skinny jeans, and he did that, and he had cool hair, and blah, blah, blah. So they picked up all these college students. But then they also would see all these homeless uh, men and women around them in downtown Columbia, and, and they began to build relationships with them. And so their church become, became overrun with homeless people and college students. So there was literally no money there. But they changed the narrative on homelessness. The way that they ministered uh, to the homeless in their city was different than any other church or any other not-for-profit in Columbia had done to that point. And so in the mayor's sort of State of the Union, State of the City speech, a couple of years after they had started, uh, the mayor thanked them because they had... Statistically changed the way homelessness worked in their city. I, I think about a friend of mine named Josh who went, he started a church in his tiny town, Woodruff, South Carolina. It was just a couple thousand people. And the church went from zero people one year at Easter to two Easters later, a thousand people. Now, it's the South, so you can think, oh, well, that happens a lot. Listen, Woodruff was a town that you would go through going from one town to the next town. There was no logical explanation for why this happened, except this guy jumped in and just said, we're going to love this community. We're going to live out our faith boldly. Now, the sad part of that story is he began to have panic attacks in the pulpit. When he was preaching, he would start uh, losing his breath. He thought he was having a heart attack one Sunday um, in the middle of his message, and so he begins to go see a doctor, who begins to point him to a psychologist or counselor, and he comes to find out the trauma of seeing that church grow so rapidly, and some of the things that happened with that caused him to develop ministry PTSD, and uh, and so he had to he had to step down from his church and give it away to to a, sort of a second command, and he left the ministry for a long time. I have another friend, Missy. uh, She and her husband, Mike, uh, have a love for international missions. And so they left their life. They were part of our first church plant that we started, and they moved to New Hampshire. They live about three hours north of here. And they started a mission training school in the middle of nowhere on the New Hampshire-Vermont line. Like, every time they tell me where they're from, I have to pull out a map and be like, I've never heard of that place. It's in the middle of nowhere. And I'm like, by all accounts, they... have given their life away. Like they're living in the middle on the New Hampshire, Vermont border up in the middle. Like that doesn't sound glamorous or fun to me, but it's what God called them to do. And it's not been insanely numerically successful, but they've been successful in the sense that they've been obedient. And here they are five, six years later, continuing to do um, what God called them to. And I think about that and how all of these men and women, and you know people like this too, they are different places on sort of the success spectrum. And some of their stories have different endings. When I see my my friend Josh, I was at a thing in Baltimore um, a year ago, and he spoke. There were eight of us in the room. He goes, JD, this is the first time in two years that I've spoken to more than five people at one time. Up until now, every time I speak to more than five people, I start having to panic attack and can feel the walls closing in, uh, so different endings, but every one of those people took a huge leap of faith. I'll tell you the biggest leap of faith that we took in our last church, we were about, we were about this many people, our church was, right? And um, we fell in love with this children's shelter that was in our downtown, and um, and it was really, nobody knew it even existed at the time, it was really small, small organization, didn't have enough funds, and, but they were trying, and they were doing a good work taking in kids, Who had been abused or neglected really badly. And so we said as a church, we're going to put on an art auction for this organization. We had seen our city, that was how you made money and raised awareness. Now we'd never done that. I'd never done any real fundraisers beyond some like youth group stuff when I was a youth pastor. And so we sat there on a Sunday morning in my living room and said, how are we going to do this? And I never will forget, Jessie, who is a stay-at-home mom, said, all right, I'm going to organize it. She was super organized, like type A, made lists and charts and spreadsheets. And she says, I'm going to organize it. And then Mike and then a guy named Scott and a guy named Abram said, we're going to build all the frames. So one Saturday, they get all these special saws, and they're building these frames and gluing them. And and we we said, we can save $2,000 if we build the frames ourselves. So these guys build these frames for like $150 bucks. And, uh, and then Natalie and a girl named Hope and a guy named Jared stretched all the canvas on the frames. And then you have to do this gessoing where you get it really tight. And so they did that. It took a couple of weeks. And then Christina and Joel and Kathy and a friend of ours who wasn't a follower of Jesus, her name is Kavita, they would go to this children's shelter and just paint with kids. And some of the kids would paint like, I love Justin Bieber. And some of the kids would paint you know, really dark, kind of sad things. And then some of the little kids would just do this. And never will forget, there's this one little kid. At the end, he was like, it doesn't feel finished. He was about four. We said, let's just put your handprint on it, because they couldn't sign their names. So we painted his hand. He threw his handprint in the middle of the canvas. And, uh, you know, it had gone... That little piece, when we went to auction, we advertised in the community, the story made the front page of the Greenville News, which was a big deal for a church of 15 people like the publicity we'd gotten, was really, it was really cool because we did not have a clue what we were doing. We ended up raising a few thousand dollars. That little piece in that boy's hand went for well over a thousand dollars by itself, Um, And it just told a really beautiful story. And we became known in that community as the church that was for the arts community. And uh, it was really sweet. And I look back and I'm like, how did we pull that event off? And I, I still don't know the answer to that. I don't know how we did it. It was so much bigger than us. I remember sitting there on that Sunday morning. It was about this time in the morning looking around like, we don't have it. We don't have the people to do what we have to do. And uh, I remember feeling like, have you ever been out in water and you feel like you're beginning to go down a little bit and you've got to get to a safe spot? Like, I remember feeling like that. God, if you don't help us, we are going to drown under the weight of what is before us. But God had put an opportunity before us and it was time to go for it. Dale Carnegie said this. I love it. He says, take a a chance. All of life is a chance. The, The man who goes farthest is generally the generally the one who is willing to do and to dare. I love that. To do and to dare. What a neat, what a neat phrase. So how many of you are risk takers? Any of you risk takers? Show of hands. A couple of you. Good. How many of you are not so much risk takers? All right. It's about half and half. It's actually surprising. Uh, I'll tell you the truth. Like honestly, by being at a new church in Charlestown every Sunday, you are taking a chance. Like every week, there is a part of me that is like, God, is this going to work? Do you ever feel like that? Is this going to work? Like, and if it wasn't, if we were just so like, oh, this is going to work. We're going to be a smashing success, blah, blah, blah. God be the glory. We would be, uh, I think, that's a leap of faith. It's a leap of faith. Every time you come, it's a leap of faith. And I want to tell you, thank you. Uh, I love being your pastor. I love the hope of what God is doing and what he's going to do. So if you've got a Bible, turn to 1 Kings chapter 18. We're going to start in verse 17. I want our lives to be marked by stuff that only God can take the credit for. And I don't sleep. I don't lose sleep, to be honest. One thing we learned about starting a church, and this applies to doing big things uh, with God, uh, the church is a body, and only God can give life to bodies. You know, I mean, only God can give life to bodies. There are things in our lives that only God can do and only God can breathe life into our job is not to put a pillow over the face of the body and suffocate it. So if God wants to do something incredible in your life and in Charleston, your, your job sometimes is just to get out of the way and let him do it and not suffocate what he's up to. And so um, today I want to talk about just going big and, and taking risks, really. So here we go. Uh, let me give you some backstory. If you haven't been here over the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about Elijah, the prophet Elijah and how he went to King Ahab, the wicked king, and said, it's not going to rain until I say so. And then immediately God says, hey, for safety and, and for cover, you need to get out of town. So God sends him uh, across the river to a safe space and God supernaturally feeds him. Eventually the supernatural feeding and water dry up. So God says, now I'm going to show you where else to go. He goes and stays with this widow who is literally about to starve to death. She's on her last meal and he says, "Hey." With that last meal. Won't you make me a meal? And she says, "Well, funny you ask that. We're about to starve to death, but I'm going to do it." So she makes him a meal, and in faith, he tells her, he, "He says the flour and the oil are not going to run out." And true to form, the flour and the oil do not run out. And though she is not an Israelite, she's not a believer, she's not a God follower. It would seem by the end of the story that she recognizes that he is a man of God and even has placed some level of faith in him. And now, fast forward again, we're three years after Elijah's declaration that it's not going to rain. And that's where we find ourselves. He's about to have his first confrontation with King Ahab. And I'm going to read you the first few verses and then we'll pause and pick up. But here we go. In verse 17, 1 Kings 18. Now, when Ahab, the king, saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And Elijah answered, I haven't troubled Israel, but you have. And your father's house, because you've abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Remember Baals, the storm god, it was... Uh, the God that the people geographically around the nation of Israel worship. And so it became sort of when people wandered from the Lord God, they wandered over at this point to Baal. And so uh, Ahab and his wife Jezebel are Baal worshipers. And then he says, you have brought this on yourself by abandoning the Lord and following Baal. Now, therefore, uh, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel. And the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Verse 20, So Ahab sent to all the people Israel, and he gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. And Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. I'm going to tell you what he does here in just a second. He's He's going to, like, think of your spaghetti western music of, you know, here comes this big showdown. Except it's not like you've got the one guy with his gun on his side and the other guy with his gun on his side. It's one guy and 450 people standing on a mountain where Baal is most centrally worshipped, a powerful place in the ancient Near Eastern world. And it says all of Israel is gathered to watch. So this is the Super Bowl, except this is the New England Patriots playing the Charlestown Pop Warner team. And actually, it's not even the whole Pop Warner team. It's the backup center taking on the New England Patriots uh, with the entire city of Boston there to watch with God's name on the line. And, uh, and it's embarrassing. And it's got to be sad for Elijah. Because for three years, he's been sitting and hiding. And God's people, like the drought, have dwindled down and dwindled down and jumped ship from worshiping God to worshiping Baal, one after the other. And so he says, how long will you limp? How long will you waver? How long will you dance? Between two different opinions. If Baal is God, go worship Baal. If the Lord is God, worship the Lord. And then they don't say a single word. They sit there totally quiet. So then going on, verse 23, comes up with a, with a game plan. Let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bowl for themselves, the prophets of Baal, and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood. But don't put fire to it. And I'll prepare the other bowl and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it and you call on the name of your God. I love that. He won't even name their God. He won't even name their God. You call on your God, and then I will call upon the name of the Lord. If you look at it, it's all caps, L-O-R-D. That's God's personal name. He's saying, you call on your God who hasn't made it rain now for going on three years, and I'm going to call on my God who I can call by name. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it's well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first for your many and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. So he took the bull that was given them. And all this is happening early in the morning. Think about the, the sun coming up. You've got kind of that beautiful part of the morning and he's laying out the challenge to 450 prophets And all the nation of Israel is there watching. And he gives this plan. So they took the bull that was given them. It's about 9 a.m. And they prepared it and called him the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. Now look at verse 21 really quickly because it's important. And then we're going to look at verse 26 again. 21 says, And Elijah came near all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? And then in 26 it says, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered. And they limped around the altar they had made. Same word. And so when you're, when we're, if we're wavering between God and some other God, And we're choosing, we can't pick, like if we're wavering between God and self, the kingdom of self and the kingdom of Jesus, or the kingdom of Jesus and the kingdom of money, or the kingdom of Jesus and the kingdom of comfort, or the kingdom of Jesus and the kingdom of whatever, that is the same, wavering between the two, limping between the two, is the same as limping around the false God itself. In God's eyes, they're the same thing. And, uh, and so they just keep dancing for three hours. They're dancing and sort of just limping between the two. And I can just see this and I can hear them like, you know, doing this sort of Druid chant or whatever, calling, oh, Baal, answer us, Baal, answer us, Baal. And uh, when Jesus would meet someone, by the way, who wavered, he always let him walk. This is the hardest part of living on mission with God is knowing when to just keep pursuing someone and sometimes just let somebody walk and say, I'm going to pray for you and I'm going to love you, but I cannot chase you down because you are wavering and you are dancing before bail or self or comfort or whatever it is. And sometimes you just got to say, you do that till you get to the end of yourself and then know that God willing, I'll still be here. And so continuing on, at noon, Elijah mocked them, and this is when the story starts getting good. He says, cry loud! He's a god. Maybe he's musing. Maybe he's thinking. Maybe Baal is sitting in a corner thinking, and you haven't been screaming loud enough. I love it. Or maybe he's relieving himself. Maybe, Maybe Baal stepped to the bathroom, and the door is closed, and you need to scream a little bit louder. Maybe he's relieving himself, or maybe he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep. Maybe, maybe Baal's taking a nap. You guys need to scream a little louder. He needs to be awakened. And so now it's 12 p.m. They've been doing this for about three hours. It says in verse 28, and they cried aloud. And now this is their custom. They start cutting themselves. And not just cutting themselves, they start cutting one another. And they're cutting each other and giving each other homemade tattoos and the blood is beginning to flow. It says they cut themselves after their custom with swords and with lances until the blood gushed out upon them. My kids would love this story. And as midday passed, I love it, as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering and the oblation. So they do this from 12 p.m. till almost dusk. And they're just screaming now, Baal, answer us. And with every passing hour and every hour that the sun moves closer to the horizon, they're screaming more frantically, Baal, light this sacrifice on fire. Help us, Baal, make this happen. And they get so frantic, they start cutting themselves and, and not just little scratches. You know, this morning, Owen was like, I got a cut. Now, look, he's got this little tiny something here that's like a little itty bitty scratch and I can't make fun because I've done the same thing as a 41 year old man i like, babe look I cut myself and it's just a tiny scratch barely gets the skin pink that's not what's happening like these guys are bleeding out 450 of them screaming bloody murder bail answer us and I, I love what verse 29 says at the end But there was no voice no one answered no one paid attention when we put our hope and self and comfort and whatever else, all the little bales that we pick that make us feel safe, they don't answer back in a time of need. And I promise you, like, okay, so here's what I've learned from experience. God always answers us in a time of need. I've also learned that he almost never answers early, and he often does not answer as I want him to. But he has never abandoned my family. And Baal did not answer, and there was no voice, and no one paid attention. Man, I I was talking with Alicia last Sunday, and she had a real issue with health care and things that were coming up in her life. And there was a lot of prayer and a lot of nervousness, and God came through. He did not come through early. He did not come through on the timeline she wanted, but he did come through. And it was so neat last week just to celebrate God's faithfulness in her life, he, has, he, has nev- he always answers. There's always a voice. And so then I love it. Verse 30, Elijah said to the people, hey, come near. And it's a bloodbath over here on this altar. And Elijah takes their altar and he just says, let's move away from here. And he calls all the people over. He says, come near to me. And the people came near to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. And Elijah took, if you write in your Bible, I love this. Elijah took 12 stones, you can underline that, according to the number of the tribes of the son of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel will be your name. And with the 12 stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two sayas of seed. And he put the wood in order. So he's building this altar, he's building the barbecue. And he cuts the bull into pieces and he lays it out on the wood. And then he said, "Do it a second time." Oh, excuse me, I skipped down. And he put the wood in order, and he cut the bulls in pieces, lays it on the wood, and he said, "Now fill four jars with water and pour it on the offering on the wood." Now has it hasn't rained in three years? To go find four jars of water is going to take some work. That in itself is a leap of faith. But they go and they get these four jars, and they pour it on the wood, and they pour it on the bull, and they pour it on the stone. And it says uh, in verse 34, and then he said, go do it a second time. So now we're up to eight jars of water. This is no small amount of water. And they did it a second time. And then he said, go do it a third time. They did it a third time. So that's 12 jars of water, 12 stones, 12 jars of water. I think that's important uh, on some level because Elijah is reminding them of who they were and who they are. See, once upon a time, now at this point in Israel's history, we're still a few hundred years before Jesus. They're a divided nation. They used to be one powerful nation. Now they're a divided nation who doesn't worship God. And they've forgotten God, and they've forgotten who they were, and they've forgotten who they are. And very methodically, Elijah sets out 12 stones. I can see him quietly setting them out, saying, Hey. And he could, maybe he's even naming the tribes, the clans that they came from, one by one, all 12. And then 12 things of water, naming them one by one. Don't forget who you are. I know what you did. I know what you've been doing. God knows. Don't forget who you are. Don't forget who God made you to be. You're not the sum total of what you've done. You are who God says you are. You are who God says you are. And so then... Uh, The water's running around, it says in 35. The altar's filled with the uh, the trench. And so uh, the altar, the trench, everything's flooded with water at this point. Verse 36, and at the time of the offering of the oblations, dusk, Elijah the prophet came near and he prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and I'm your servant. And I've done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and you have turned their hearts back. And then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust. The fire was so strong, it burned up the rocks and it burned up the dust and it licked up the water in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And a panic comes across them because they saw the power of God in that moment. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them there down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. Pretty morbid. Morbid little ending that we can talk about on another day another time. Um, Fire fell, consumed the bull, the wood, the stones, the dust... And the water and the people worship. Now I want to show you just a couple things from this, if I can. Do you have the slides? Keep up the slides real quick. Um, let's see if you can find the one I'm looking for. I'll go one more. That's Pat. We'll go past that one. All right. A couple things I want to show you. Not every moment in life's a big moment. I think this becomes the danger of living in an Instagram world is we only show our big moments, our good moments or we only see our friends' big moments, and we can begin to think that everybody's living a big life. And the truth is, most of our moments are not big moments. But when the big moments come, we need to go big. When the big moments in life come, go big. When your kid has a big birthday, celebrate it big. When it's a momentous year and your wedding anniversary deal, go big. Man, if God gives you 50 years, celebrate that one big. If he gives you 60 years, celebrate it bigger. If he gives you 70 years, celebrate that one even biggest, on up. Go big on the big moments of life because not every moment's a big moment. We get three stories in a three-year window. God does three incredible things in Elijah's life. What we forget is that there were, if there are three weeks of incredible, then that means that there were 149 weeks that didn't make Scripture. Not every moment is a big moment, but when the big moments come, go big, and career choices, family, spiritual health, uh, and serving our church. And I want to tell you, like, the big moments will often feel small. The biggest moments in my life when I said yes to God started with something really small that usually was about the size of an English pea in my gut, but it grew, and there was this sense in me that now it's time. And then you look back in the wake of it, you say, poof, that was a big moment. But you usually don't feel that way at the beginning. When the big moments of life and faith come, go big. The second thing I want you to see from this story is doing nothing. I can't remember how I put this up here. Doing nothing is not a decision. He says to the people, how long will you go limping between, wavering between Two opinions. In our world, doing nothing is often seen, it, it's almost easier always to do nothing. I had a seminary professor who told us, he said, People don't change until the pain of change is less than the pain of staying the same. When it becomes so painful to stay the same way, that's the point when human beings tend to change. Usually, otherwise, we like to stay the same. Doing nothing is usually easier. And usually seen as more positive than actually doing something. People who actually try to do something usually get made fun of or questioned to no end. We were were leaving this afternoon to go visit family for a few days. And we were saying this week, we were like, after 11 years of starting churches, our families still don't understand what the heck we're doing. Our family goes, when are you guys going to get a church? We're like, we got one. It's awesome. They're like, no, we mean a building. Oh, we're like, well, that may never happen. I don't know. But we got some amazing people that we're journeying with in faith, and it's awesome. And they don't get it. Because oftentimes doing something different, making a decision, is confusing to people, and they don't understand. And um, But doing nothing is not a decision. That's not a decision. The status quo is not a decision. There, in Sweden... Uh, In Stockholm, there's part of the Swedish worldview called Jontalagen, the law of Janta. He was a philosopher. And basically, Jontalagen says that all of Sweden is like a glass cup, okay? And the entire nation of Sweden is in the cup. And anybody who tries to climb out of the cup is anti-Swedish. And it's the job of a good Swede to pull them back down so that no one tries to climb out and be different. We have this and this has crept into sort of our American way as well. Who are you to try to change? Who are you to try to be better than me? Who are you? Who do you think you are? I see this all the time in Charlestown. It's, and this is negative, so I may have to edit this out of the, uh, the message. But there's this sense sometimes that like, well, I'm not going to try something new, but I'm going to criticize anybody else who tries something new. And that's dangerous because indecision is no decision. And the people were rebuked on that day. See, Elijah reminded them of who they were, but also he needed to remind them of what they did. And what they did was they didn't act. They limped between two opinions. The third thing I want you to see, I think we have this as a slide. The dance of indecision and the dance of idolatry are indistinguishable. You can't tell the difference. It's hard for me to, I'll be honest, it's hard for me to tell the difference between a devil worshiper And a stuff worshiper. Their hearts are just as selfish, turned inward, and bankrupt. And you know how I know? Because I can be one. There are times in my life where I forget, I become God forgetful and only remember myself. And you cannot tell the difference between me and an atheist in that moment. A practical atheist and a functioning atheist. Look the same. But when you meet someone whose heart has been on set on fire by Jesus in the gospel, you know you met them. You know you met them. There are people like that in this neighborhood. I know when I hang out with them. There's just, they raise the temperature in the room. The dance of indecision and the dance of idolatry are indistinguishable. Only the gospel really sets us apart. The fourth thing I want you to see We need to be, and this is the main thing, by the way. If you want to write one thing down, this is it. We need to be more afraid of a missed opportunity than failed efforts. In our life, will you go to that next, is it in there? Sorry. We need to be more afraid of a missed opportunity than failed efforts. I think we live in such a safety, safe, I pray for my kids, God, keep them safe, we have a mission team come up here to serve in our community, our churches. God, keep them safe. Let their plane ride be safe. Let them be safe in the city. God, we're going to put our kids to bed tonight. God, keep us safe through the night. We're sending our kids to school for the first day in a couple of weeks. God, keep them safe, safe, safe. Everybody's got to be safe, We need to be more afraid of a missed opportunity than a failed effort. And sometimes safety needs to be our last concern. Had it ever rained fire before? I don't know. I've read the Bible a couple times through. To my knowledge, it rarely rained fire. That didn't happen a lot. So when Elijah on the mountain is like, all right, guys, you do your bull. I'm going to do mine. The God who answers by fire, the God who spontaneously combusts this bull, that's the living God. Like, that's a, that's a pretty bold move. But he's more afraid of a missed opportunity than, than a failed effort. He's more afraid of a missed opportunity, a failed effort. If God is pleased with Elijah and all the prophets of Baal are angry, then Elijah still wins. We can become forgetful of that. I forget, but if God is happy with me, it doesn't make a bit of difference what everybody else thinks. And so we've got this Through Our Eyes project coming up in September, and we've got 75 disposable cameras, and we need to get photographers, and we've got to get people to help distribute and collect them, and then we've got to get people to recruit 75 people to do it. Even beyond social media, and we've got to get people to serve that weekend as we're going to have a gallery down at the gallery on Medford Street. And then at the same time that that's going on, we've got this basketball team thing that's happening, and I'm not even sure fully what that's going to look like yet, but it's before us and it starts September 15th. And Coach Coleman and I were texting yesterday about it. And we need people to give to that. And I'm challenging us to prayerfully give 1% more this month as a church to help pay for that. And then we need people to make sure you're here because it would be bad if there's more basketball players here than people from our church. And so we've got to like you know, move past the summer uh, sort of travels and and begin to be here. And then when these guys come in, we've got to make sure that we befriend them and we're talking with them back here and we're sitting with them and mentoring these people and getting to know them. And then we're going to have to have people who serve food because we're feeding them after worship on Sundays. And we're not going to bring all the food every week, but there will be some weeks where we do potluck, but most of the weeks we're just going to serve them so we can tear down from church, feed them, and get them ready to basketball. Or condition, and I look at either of these events and say, This is crazy. <laughs> I look at the basketball event. I, I mean, I I am like a nervous wreck. I'm like, how's this gonna work? I don't know how this is gonna work. I don't know how we're gonna do it. I don't know if these guys are gonna come. I don't know if Coach Coleman's gonna be here every week. I don't know. I don't. And the Lord's reminded me we need to be more afraid of a failed, of a missed opportunity than a failed effort. When are we going to have someone say, what would it look like to bring 45 teenagers, most of whom don't know Jesus, to come to your church? Now, I don't know what it's going to look like. I'm really nervous. But I'm more nervous that we would stand before God as a church and him be like, why did you not let those young men come to your church? Why didn't you figure that out? I'm nervous about this photography thing because I'm like, here's what I've seen. I've asked a couple of people and I tell people and they're like, I'm not going to show you what my life is like. I don't want anybody knowing that. And we've seen people who are like, I'm not doing that because it's Charlestown and that's what we do. We say no to things automatically. Like I even have that in me, right? And uh, so I don't know how we're gonna pull that off either. I know we've got a group coming to help some, but I know a lot of it, the in-between is gonna be on us. It's crazy, it's stupid to try this stuff. But these were opportunities that God has given us. So we set out 99 chairs in here a lot. It looks good in here though, doesn't it? Thanks to Renee for helping set him up this morning. We got to all tear him down here in a minute. <laughs> September 29th, I pray we fill most of them. And not just with nebulous faces. I, I'm thinking about a dad who's ready to, and I don't know him. I'm thinking about a dad who's ready to check out of his marriage and out of his family. And he gets a camera, and the process of taking 20 photos with his children reignites his love for his family, and he stays. And maybe he's sitting here on September 29th. And I'm thinking about a lesbian couple who has said they're super excited to get a camera and show that. And they've always heard that God hates gay people, and he hates lesbians, so they are not welcome in a church. And I hope that out of this, they see that God totally loves them. And he loves their life. He loves them exactly where they are. And he loves them too much to leave them right there. And I pray they come and sit in here. And I'm thinking about a young man, a young man who comes in here because he has nothing better to do on Sunday morning. And he loves Coach Coleman and respects Coach Coleman because he's like a father figure to him. And he comes in here and he gets uh, something to drink and a little bit to eat. And then we feed him lunch. And for the first time in his life, in between breakfast, lunch, and basketball, he hears the gospel. And I'm thinking about teenagers who are two generations removed from anybody in their family tree who love Jesus and the gospel. And they come here for the first time. And I'm thinking about Hispanic people and Asian people and people who've lived in this neighborhood for four generations. And I'm praying that on that day, September 29th, townies walk in here and they look and they see other people who are from this neighborhood. And they're like, oh, well, it's actually okay to be here. And there's two ways we can do this. One way is we just pray uh, every day that God would slowly grow his church. I think the better way is we just say on September 29th, we swing for the fence. That's the one day. Don't fool with inviting your friends on. We don't meet next Sunday. Don't show up. We don't meet, uh, we will meet the first. Don't invite your friends to Labor Day. Nobody's going to be here. I'm going to be here passing out cameras. I'll have breakfast. There'll be like three of us here, and that'll be great. I'll remind you so the three who are in town can be here. It'll be awesome. Don't do it the 8th. Let's pray. Not the 15th. That's the first day the basketball guys will have the option of being here. Not the 22nd, the 29th. And we swing for the fence and try to fill as many of these chairs as possible. Let me show you the last thing that I want you to see in this story. If you're not going to be here on the 29th, I'm going to shoot myself in the foot, by the way. So let me know, and I might switch it to the 22nd. (laughs) The fifth thing, and this is the most important part of this. God's the God of fire. God's the God of fire. Why do you do the 12 stones? Because the 12 stones held the offering. They held the bull. But the 12 stones were consumed as a testimony to the power of the fire of God. Why do you do the 12 jars of water? Because the 12 jars of water made it more unlikely that the fire would burn. But the 12 jars of water became the reminder that God can burn through water and stone. And God needs a vessel sometimes to display his power. He doesn't do this stuff in a vacuum, usually. And, they, and those became the, the testimony, the fuel for what God wanted to do. And I'm praying that in our church we can say in the days ahead, remember when God worked through us in a powerful way. God is the fire. Hebrews 12:29 says, our God is a consuming fire. When you're in an impossible situation, I want to remind you that God is the God who rains down fire from heaven when it's needed. Carson asked me this morning, where's our family living in a couple of weeks? We bought a house, but we can't close until God knows when. Uh, And our lease ends September 1st. And I told him, I was like, I don't know. But man, I'm telling you, last night, all our stuff's in storage, including the mattresses. Slept on the floor last night. Slept like a baby. Now, I may not walk this afternoon. My back may be gone. (laughs) I'm going to sleep in a bed tonight in Georgia. Praise God. But there is nothing in me that wonders if God is going to come through because he is the God of fire and he will take care of my family in a powerful way. And we've already seen him do it. We've already seen him do it. Why? Because we're good? Nope. Because we need some adventure? Nope. We've thought about with our cats, putting them in the storage unit. We found that <laughs> we found that people have spent the night in storage units before, so... Um, You know, we're not doing this because we need an adventure. We're doing it. Uh, We're not doing the through our eyes of the basketball thing because we're trying to build the organization of Christ Church Charlestown. We're doing it because God is the living God. And because 2,000 years ago, there was another showdown on another hill when Jesus faced down Satan and sin, and he won. And he won. He won in our lives, and he wants to win in our community. Jesus gave it all so that people can belong to him. He did not fail, and he did not shy away. He went big to accomplish our salvation, our forgiveness, and our peace with God. And so our proper response is that we don't limp along. We don't limp along and waver between two opinions, but we live totally surrendered to him. Romans 12, 1 says, Finally, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, I urge you, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is your spiritual act of worship. A reminder that we're the thing on the altar and God has permission to consume us for his glory. Let me pray for us. And then Carla, would you mind us serve communion here in a moment?